6. Paul is, uh, he's, he's directing the attention to the people he's writing to. He's, he's posing some questions. And I believe that he's asking these questions because in his missionary journeys, he's probably been approached by people with these questions. And so in order to you know, give the answers to the people he's writing to, he's saying, hey, just in case you're thinking of this, here's an answer. And I love that because Paul has lots of, um, he's got lots of experience dealing with non-believers and he's got lots of experience con- conversing with believers. His uh, main role was to go and start churches and so he would find people that were already believers in these different towns and he would organize and get the groups together and, and build up a church that many, many times would just be meeting in people's homes. But he would raise up leaders to lead these churches and then he would depart. Now to me, that takes a lot more faith than staying in a spot and leading yourself. To raise up people that are able to teach, that's a great responsibility. And so to you know, raise up somebody, teach them, and to leave, that takes a lot of faith in the Lord. Because I'm sure there were many nights when Paul kind of spent some sleepless time going, I wonder if so-and-so's doing all right. I, I kind of left him hanging. So Paul... Um, Starting many churches knows the questions that come up for new believers, for believers that have been walking with the Lord. He had the only these questions. I'm sure are also some ones that that he came up with himself as he was walking with the Lord, and he had to pray through. Lord, give me wisdom. How should I? You know, what should my life look like now that I'm a believer? And so, as we start this morning, we find ourselves in Romans six, where Paul has just spent the first half of the chapter asking the question: Okay, if we're saved by grace through faith. If we're justified by faith, if we're the only thing good that we have to offer the Lord is because of His righteousness and we can't earn it, then what does it matter if my life changes at all? What is my relationship supposed to be to sin? Because I I still struggle with sin. And so should I just give up and just go on sinning? So that's the question he asked last week in verse 1 of chapter 6. He says, what shall we say then? In chapter one, chapter six, verse one, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And so he's asking the question, as a believer, he's not writing to non-believers in this case. He's saying, as a believer, now that I've been saved and it's by grace through faith in the Lord, do I really need to change my behavior? Can I just continue on in sin? And there are many people that believe, hey, God saved me so I can just do whatever I want. I can sin to the glory of God. Now, if you think about that, many of us wouldn't say it that way, but we might have thought that before. You know, God saved me. I'm good. I don't have to worry about it anymore. I can just let it rip tater chip. And the Lord's saying, hey, um, no. And then Paul doesn't just say no. He's not going to just say, no, you can't and walk away because Paul's not relying on his own authority. He gives reasons. He says, do you not know, verse 3 That as many of us were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death. And then he says, you know, basically in verse 11, he gives us our first command from uh, the book of Romans. He says, therefore reckon, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. You know, you once were dead. Yeah, that's why you were sinning. So to continue on sinning, even though God's made you alive, means that you probably don't really understand. Maybe you're not participating in your own salvation. I listened to a guy, he said it that way, and I was like, have you really participated in the act of salvation 
If you were dead in your sins and trespasses, Christ made you alive and you went back to the wallow. You went back to the, to the sin that, that destroyed your life and was leading to death. Why, once you've tasted life, would you want to go back to death? Well, he, what he's saying is here is that Christ has given you power over sin. He's given you power over death. It's not something that comes from yourself. It's a gift from God. And it would be t- like taking the, the, the best gift you can think of at Christmas and going, hey, I really love this thing, and telling everyone you loved it, and you did. Would you then throw it away? Well, not if you really loved it. You'd keep that thing. You would cherish it. You would take care of it. And you would embrace it and go, hey, thank you for this gift. And so that's what he said to them. You know, sin should no longer reign over you or have control over you. The Holy Spirit has given you power to no longer be controlled by your flesh and your desires and by sin. So this week he asks what seems like the same question. Last week he said, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Should we continue sinning in a lifestyle of sin so that great grace would just pour forth from our life? Because we've already decided that because Jesus saved us, the sins that we committed, though they were causing death in our life, God's brought glory through them by saving us, by forgiving us. He shows a love that the world doesn't offer. He shows that God loves while we're still sinning against Him. Now, how many friends do you love that you have that will love you before you apologize. Christ loved you before you apologize, before you confessed your sin. That's an amazing love. The world has no love like that to offer. So then this week he asked the question in verse 15. He says, what then? Now verse 14, he said, for sin shall not have dominion or rule or reign like a king shouldn't control you. For you are not under the law, but you're under grace. So verse 15, he continues. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but we're under grace? Should we, you know, he's not talking about the continual pattern of living in sin. He's saying, should we sin when it's convenient because we're not under the law anymore, but we're under grace? You know, God's not going to strike us down. There's not a commandment that says, hey, you know, you've sinned and so you're going to hell. He's not saying that. He's saying, you've been freed. You've been made positionally uh, an inheritor of the kingdom of God. You're going to heaven. So once in a while, is it okay to just go ahead and dabble in sin? Since we you know, will be forgiven because God's grace is a gift that we can't earn. He says, certainly not. God forbid. Verse 16, he says, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey... You are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience leading to righteousness. He's giving us the the contrast. Are you a slave to sin, which leads to death, or do you want to be a slave to righteousness? Because you and I were made to serve. We will serve something, whether it's our fleshly appetites, whether it's the, the, um, the, the fear of men, Basically, people's opinions. Are you serving people's opinions? Are you trying to be a man pleaser or a woman pleaser? Are you serving sin or are you serving God? Because before I started walking with the Lord, I watched the people that were walking with the Lord and I was like, I want to be a Christian. I want my ticket punch so I can get into heaven. But I don't know if I want to serve God because I like serving me. I like my appetites. I like my hobbies. I like, you know, whatever it might be for you. 
I don't want to give up my sin and then have to serve what God wants me to do because he might call me to do something I don't want to do. Well, at first it does seem that way. But if you don't serve God, you become a slave to sin and then you start doing what it tells you to do. So either way, you're going to be serving something other than yourself. And so he says there, these sins, or these things will make you slaves. Whatever you serve, you present your members to serve them and they make you their slave. Number one, sin leading to death. Number two, obedience, which leads to righteousness. Verse 17, but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, notice that were is past tense, though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine, which is just a fancy word for teaching. You obeyed from the heart that form of teaching to which you were delivered. He says, remember back to when you first started walking with the Lord. He says, thanks be to God that you were slaves of sin, yet now you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. I love this because he doesn't say you obeyed on the outward. He says you obeyed from the heart. You didn't obey because someone told you to. He's saying you obeyed because God gave you a new heart. You had a desire to obey. You saw the fruit of it. You saw that the way that you were traveling on was going to lead to death. And so when the Lord showed you that his way leads to life, you were like, I'm going that way. I'm going that way instead. And if you've done that, realize that the only way you can do that is if God's enlightened your heart, he's opened the eyes of your heart, he's given you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation so that you could choose the right path. We can't choose the right path on our own. We can't pull ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps. If you've recognized your sinfulness and your need for a savior, that's because the spirit of God revealed it to you. When when Jesus was speaking to the crowds and he told them, hey, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you cannot be saved. There were many there that were saying, hey, that's too much to take. That's kind of creepy. And they left. And they didn't understand, but they were like, this is too much of a cost. I'm leaving. And what Jesus then said to his disciples there who remained is he said, will you guys leave me too? And of course, the Apostle Peter, the one I can relate with the most, he spoke up brashly, but he spoke, spoke up in truth. He said, he said, to whom else can we go, Lord? You have the way that leads to eternal life. Where else can we go? Well, we, we're yours. And he said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, he spoke this to you. That's the only way you know it. And so Peter was encouraged. Of course, right after that, you know, Jesus told him, he said, hey, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to be put to death. I'm going to die for the sins of the world. And Peter said, far be it from you. You know, that's too much of a cost. He still had a struggle with what it would cost. And Jesus said, what? Get behind me, Satan. So you've got to realize that we have this fleshly nature. We have this spiritual nature made alive in Christ. And we, we're, we're kind of polar opposites. We, we're never hitting it down the fairway, it seems like. Many times I can, in one sentence, in one breath, bless the Lord with my words and with my actions from the heart, and then in the next step, I, I just go off in a way that leads to death. I, you know, whether it's you know, in an outburst of wrath in my own home towards my wife or my child, or whether it's you know, just getting aggravated and being bitter about something. And so we need to realize that the Lord, He's the one that gives us the, 
the, the heart to obey the Lord and to have his desires. And so he says, thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of teaching to which you were delivered. God delivered you to the cross. He delivered you to an understanding of grace. He delivered you to salvation. And having been set free, he calls this as if it's already taken place. Having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. If you are in Christ, you're still a slave. But you're no longer a slave to sin. In the flesh, you're a slave of righteousness. You're a slave to obey the Lord, to bring fruit forth that bears to Him. Verse 19, he says, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, which leads to more lawlessness, so now, he says, and this is something we have to do, something we have to decide and we have to take the steps. He says, so now, present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Holiness, another word for that is wholeness. Do you notice that there are appetites in your flesh and in your being? You, you always want more. You always you know, have hunger, you know, whether it's for food, which is not a bad thing, or for a relationship, or for... And we have hungers for things, and it makes us almost restless. And what the Lord's saying is that those necessarily won't go away. They're in your flesh. They, we desire more, more, more of something. That's our sinful nature. Um, and those things aren't bad desires, but they can be outside of the control of the Holy Spirit. We can go you know, to the nth degree in this direction, to the nth degree in that direction. What the Lord wants to do is He wants to constrain those and make those desires holy. And that's not some, you know, uh, that's not some stained glass window idea of holiness. Holiness means to be used for the purposes for which God made you. To be sanctified, to be set apart for God's use doesn't mean that your life is perfect. It means that God is continually starting to use more and more of your life for His reasons because He's made you for a specific purpose. And so He says, present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. You're going to serve something, learn to serve the Lord. Present your members to serve Him. What's funny is as you present your members to serve Him, you won't have time to serve yourself. And then your flesh will reel at that and you'll want to back away. But in the mo those moments, say, Lord, I know what I'm supposed to do. Help me to continue. He says, verse 20, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. So on an overlying theme of this passage, starting in 15, all the way down to verse, um, what is that, 22? What I want to point out is that there are three effects of sin in the life of a believer. Because we're going to read this last verse, and it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is everlasting life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now we oftentimes use that as a verse to share with people so they'll see that their lives are leading to death. So that they'll see that there is a way that leads to life that's offered to them freely. But what I want to point out is verse 23 is actually written to believers. This chapter is about the believer and sin and their relationship and how it should be. He says we should be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. 
And then the question gets asked, well, shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? And what he's going to say is, no, because. Because sin makes you a slave. It enslaves you. If you present your body under the control of sin, it will enslave you. It will put shackles on you. And what you choose to do at first will then take control of you. And I'm going to give a a specific example because it's one that we've all seen, not because it's the worst thing in the world. But for instance, addictions of any kind, whether it's smoking, whether it's drinking, whether it's drugs, whether it's eating too much, whether it's drinking too much, you know, all of those things. But for instance, I'm going to use smoking because it's just a perfect example. You start it because you want to, whether it's because it looks cool, whether it's because um, you just want to, or I don't know. There's different reasons. I did it because I wanted to look cool. And and the reality was uh, I couldn't take it long enough to get addicted because I watched my dad for years try to quit and he couldn't. And my dad has always been an example to me of somebody that can literally will himself to do anything, but he couldn't will himself to quit smoking. (coughs) And uh, sin is like that. You choose to do it because it is pleasurable for a season. And then you think, hey, I'm just going to do it once. You're not planning on leading to destruction. You're just planning on smoking one cigarette. And then it leads to another. And then it leads to another. And the next thing you know, you're like, I need to quit this. Number one, it's hurting me. Number two, it's expensive. And it's gotten more so in the last few years, right? But what does it lead to? It leads to bondage. And sin is that way. We, we choose to do it. It feels good. And then next thing you know, we can't quit. And an example of that is I was talking to a guy one time. He said, hey, quitting smoking is easy. I've done it like six times. <laughs> well, did he really quit? No, not really. And sin is like that. But what he's saying is that sin enslaves you. And number two, sin makes you ashamed. You start to hide from God because of it. And number three, we read in verse uh, 21, it spreads death throughout your life. Now, we oftentimes think of the wages of sin being death, and we think of physical death, or we think of eternity without God. And no doubt, those are results of sin. And we're going to go there in a minute in Genesis chapter 3. You know, sin led forth to death. And you say, well, that, that's no big deal. It just causes it in my life. Well, Adam and Eve sinned. It led forth to them dying, but who else dies because of it? You and I. Each one of us. Even if we never sinned, which we won't never sin, that's a double negative, but even if we never did, we would still die. Our bodies are corrupted with the effect of sin. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Let's go back to where it all started. Seems to me when you go back to the beginning, it's usually the simplest. There's not all kinds of complications. But let's look at the effect of what it had. And when, when, when Adam and Eve rejected the command of God, they rebelled, they listened to the lies of the enemy and the effect that sin had on their life. It was death, but not immediately. Not what we think of when we go to a funeral home, we say, hey, someone died. But death can mean other things. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said? That's how he always comes to us, by the way. He questions what God said. Spread seed of doubt. He says, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Which 
He hadn't. He said, one tree, right? Verse two, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. So then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. God just knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. Knowing good and evil. Well, you can see where this would be a huge temptation because number one, he's saying, well, the thing he told you was going to do to cause death, you're not going to die. Can you imagine when they ate it and they're like, hey, we're not dead. God did lie to us. What in the world? It didn't kill me. But it did. And the effect of that is shown in the next verses. He says, you will not surely die. He knows that you'll be like me, verse 4. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, this is 1 John 2, verse 11, lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. This 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 is Satan's playbook every time. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The desire to feel good, it was good for food, to, it was pleasant to the eyes to, to be good, and the desire to look good, and a tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit, she ate, and then she also gave to her husband with her and ate. I often have heard this taught, and one guy, time a guy was talking about this, and he said, can you imagine what happened? Eve ate it. And she looked over at her husband and, and he wasn't going to eat it because, you know, he knew the command. And she looked at him and said, well, you're not going to leave me alone in this, are you? Uh, you're going to leave me all alone over here? And he's like, oh, okay. You know, he didn't want to hurt his wife. And so he knowingly sinned. He ate the fruit. So then they heard the sound of the Lord in the garden, I kind of skip forward in verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So they ate it. They heard the Lord coming in the garden. Apparently they walked with him in the garden. But notice it doesn't say that they saw him. They heard him. Their eyes had been blinded by sin. So now they're hearing the Lord And what do they do? What's their first response? After covering themselves with fig leaves, they hid. So sin, number one, it enslaved them. They gave themselves over to it. And number two, it made them ashamed. So they hid from God. And they heard, uh, verse nine, then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. They were naked in the beginning, and they didn't know it. They were unashamed because they were in the presence of the Lord. They were unaware of their own nakedness. And when they ate the fruit, all of a sudden they noticed they were naked and they were ashamed. And he said, who told you, verse 11, that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? This is how God calls out to us. He says, have you done this? Now, God knows that they've done it. But he wants them to confess it themselves, to admit, hey, we did exactly what you told us not to. And this is God's call to everyone, people that don't believe and people that believe. He's calling us to repentance. And repentance looks like this. Uh, But what I want to show you is even Adam and Eve were horrible at repentance. God accepts it still, though. I love it. Because look there in verse 9. He said, where are you? Verse 10 
I was naked. He said, who told you you were naked? Verse 12. Then man said, this is his confession, by the way. Man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Now what's the confession there? The confession is, I ate. Yes, I did. Did you eat it? He's looking for yes or no. What does Adam do? He says, he gives excuses. He says, well, the woman that you gave me, Lord, she made me do it. The devil made me do it. But the confession is, yes, I ate. And then, verse uh, 13, the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. He blamed the serpent. But it's still confession. I love that. The Lord is so gracious. And after that, what the Lord does, he says, hey, those fig leaves aren't good enough to cover your sin. What I want you to do is I'm gonna, I'm gonna provide a sacrifice for you. The first time there's an animal sacrifice in the Bible is in Genesis chapter three, where he gives them animal skins to wear. Now, how do you get an animal skin? You have to kill it, right? And Leviticus says that without the remission of, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. There can be no forgiveness. And so God shows that in order for forgiveness, there has to be death of an innocent life. So he provides a covering. But what I want to point out is that sin enslaves us, it makes us ashamed, and then it spreads forth death. And the result of that can see be seen in uh, verse 17. Then Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it, all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So Adam is held accountable for his wife's sin and following her. And so there's also the principle that the man needs to, to lead his family. He can't just put it in neutral and let things happen. And it's, it's a temptation but what we see there is that even though the woman was the one who first sinned, the man is held responsible. And so to be active in those relationships. But what I want to point out is that it spread death. Sin spread forth death in those that were walking with God. And that's the point I want to make. That this morning as you read this passage, as you see in verse 21, where it says, What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? In Christ... Being a believer, you should look back on your past life and there should be a sense of shame. Shame is a sign of death that's happened in your life. Pain is a sign of death that's happened in your life. Broken relationships, those things are all signs of death. They're not physical death, but they are death. And so he's trying to point out that there's this principle that applies to believers and non-believers alike. And just because you're in Christ, doesn't mean that sin can no longer have an effect on you if you give in to it. He says, For the end of those things is death, but now, verse 22, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end is everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This was written to believers. And so I brought in my chronological Bible because just this week I was trying to think of a better illustration because obviously Genesis is a good one. 
But what about later? What's another example of where a believer, someone who was following the Lord and took a little vacation from obedience, sinned and it caused forth to be death? Well, a good example is in King David. So uh, go ahead and turn. Uh, I'm going to be reading from 2 Samuel 24, but also from 1 Chronicles 21. So turn in 1 Chronicles or 2 Samuel, because either way, um, you'll be in the same story. Now, the chronological Bible we're reading this year kind of jumps back and forth, and it doesn't tell you where. So it's not really easy to follow along with. But the story is in 2 Samuel 24, if you want to refer to it later, and it's in 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1 through 6. But David has had many uh, victories. His obedience to the Lord has been a blessing to his nation. And he is a king known for having a, a heart after God's own heart. And so that's what God calls him. But it says in 1 Chronicles 21 and 2 Samuel 24 that Satan rose up against Israel and incited David, he tempted him, to take a census of Israel. So David said to Joab, which was the commander of his army, he said to Joab and the commanders of the troops, Go and count the Israelites from Beersheba to Dan, and then report back to me, so that I may know how many there are. Now God had commanded the kings of Israel not to count their people. Why? Because they were never to find their confidence in the strength or in the numbers of the people of Israel. They were supposed to find their strength in the Lord. If we start counting the things that we have to measure up in order to fight against the enemies of this world, whether it's our co-workers or whether it's the situations we're in, if we start to count what God has given us as the strength we have, rather than himself being our strength, we'll start to falter. And so he told them, don't count your people. Now, there were times when God told him, go and count your people. But it was in order so that they could make a proper offering. But in all reality, he told them, don't count your people. Don't count your chariots. Don't collect horses. Your strength is to be in the Lord your God. So even Joab, who was an ungodly commander in his army, he was a guy known for you know, sneaking up on people and getting them in the kidney when they weren't looking. When David had people that he put in power, he had even killed some of the men that David had put in power. He was a ruthless soldier. But even Joab, being a very ungodly ruler... He replied to David, he said, May the Lord multiply his troops a hundred times over. My Lord the King, are they not all my Lord's subjects? Why does my Lord want to do this? Why should he, talking about David, bring guilt on Israel? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders, so they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. So they went and counted them anyway. Joab said, Hey, we shouldn't do this. This is sin against God. And David said, count them anyway. This is what I want to do. I'm the king. So they counted them. But Joab did not include the Levites and, the, and Benjamin in the numbering because the king's command was repulsive to him. So he wasn't quite obedient to David. But then David sees the wrong. This command was also evil in the sight of God, so he punished Israel. And then David said to God, I have sinned greatly by doing this. So he was aware of his sin. And he begs the Lord, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. So then the story continues. And basically, God gives him three options. You ever give your kids 
three options for their punishment? You ever, you ever go, okay, here's what you've done. You've transgressed. You've done what I told you not to. Here's some, here's some options. And so he gives them three options. And there's always conjecture about why the options were what they were. But uh, one of the prophets at the time went to David with a word from the Lord. And he said, this is what the Lord says. Take your choice. In other words, choose your switch. For those of you that grew up with a, a, a willow tree out, out back. He said, I'm giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So God says, you've done wrong. You get to choose your punishment. So Gad went to David and he said to him, this is what the Lord says. Take your choice. You can either experience three years of famine, three months of being swept away before your enemies with their swords overtaking you, or three days of the sword of the Lord days of plague in the land with the angel of the Lord ravaging every part of Israel. He says, now then decide how I should answer the one who sent me. So the punishment doesn't just go to David for his disobedience. David is a king responsible for this great nation God has built. His punishment, his sin, affects the entire nation. Now, his three choices are you can let your enemies take you over, and God was going to do that. I won't be with you. I'll let them overtake you. You can experience three years of famine. There won't be any food. Or you can experience the sword of the Lord, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's going to go out, the angel of death, and he's going to kill. Now that's also something that happened in Egypt, right? But punishment begins in the house of the Lord. David knew what he was supposed to do and did not. James says this. James says, to him who knows to do good and does not, it is accounted to him as sin. Sin leads to death. And so he chooses to let the Lord choose. So he puts his hands at the mercy of God and the angel of death goes throughout the land and kills. It says there, So the Lord sent a plague on Israel and 70,000 men of Israel fell dead. One man's sin brought forth death to 70,000 people. Now we go, well, how in the world can the Lord let that happen? He didn't. He told David how to live, and David rebelled. So let me tell you that when you sin against the Lord, it's not just yourself that's affected. Death will be spread. There will be fruit. There will be consequences from your sin. And that is the main message from today. That the, it is very true that the wages of sin is death for the unbeliever, and the gift of God is everlasting life. But to those who know better and do not do it, there's also consequences. That the sins that we commit, even though we are in Christ, can cause there to be death. Will they cause eternal separation from God? No, but they will bear forth consequences of the lives of the people surrounding you. So let me ask you, are you questioning the Lord rather than obeying Him? And are you thinking that it's only going to affect you? Because it won't. It'll spread forth death. There will be fruit. And so may the Lord show mercy. May we take this word from Romans today and say, Lord, I guarantee there's areas in my life that I'm not being obedient. Show them to me and give me the faith to repent and to change so that I'm not a spreader of life or death, but a spreader of life because that's what he's given us to do. We are his ambassadors. We are to be ministers of life. And so Lord change us, right? Father, thank you so much uh, for our salvation. That is the very beginning of our life with you. But Lord, every day we're faced with consequences and choices 
and we're oppressed, and uh, we're oppressed sometimes outwardly, many times uh, it's our own sinful nature that we are oppressed by. And so Lord, help us to put away the sinful desires and to pick up the life of faith of serving you. Help us to serve you and not sin. Help us not to question whether or not you have our best interests in mind. Lord, it's uh, very apparent and visible to me that you have our best interest in mind. And so Lord, save us from ourselves. We've been saved to a new life. Help us to live that new life. We've committed our lives to you. Help us to follow through with that commitment. Help us to present our lives as servants to you. And may you receive the glory and the honor. May you produce a field full of righteousness and a field ready for harvest. Lord, we desire to see people in our families, people in our homes, our children. We desire to see people in this valley come to know you and to see and experience the life that you've given us. Lord, help us to take the steps every day to to live that out. So Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's close with a song.